Thank you for listening in on our podcast, where you'll hear a conversation between Brandon Poe and Chris Sloan, an attorney with Baker Donaldson. Today's topic is contract law. Chris brings a refreshing approach to contract creation. His goal is to make them clear, concise, and simple. Brandon Poe is the founder of Poe Group Advisors, a leading-edge practice brokerage and coaching firm serving accountants in the U.S. and Canada. Chris Sloan, a shareholder at Baker Donaldson, helps many early-stage, high-growth businesses with business planning and formation, venture capital funding, drafting and negotiating vendor and customer agreements, strategic contract negotiations, mergers and acquisitions, intellectual property protection, and other general business law and intellectual property law issues. He takes pride in providing his clients with practical, cost-effective advice tailored for each client's unique business objectives. He is a master mentor and board member of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, and he was a member of the Nashville Chamber's Partnership 2010 Entrepreneurship Task Force that led to its formation. Chris is also a former board chair of the Nashville Technology Council and still serves as its general counsel. Hi, thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, My name is Brandon Poe, and I'll be talking with Chris Sloan today. Chris is an attorney in Nashville, Tennessee. Chris, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Chris, you and I um, met just recently at a EO event, and uh, we ha- we started talking about sort of your philosophy about law, which got me very interested. Um, but before we get into that, tell me just a little bit about yourself and your firm and how you got into the legal profession. Sure. I chair the emerging companies practice for Baker Donaldson. We're one of the 100 largest law firms in the U.S., but we're based entirely in the southeastern U.S. We have about 730 lawyers that cover basically every area of expertise that a business might need. My practice and my team's practice is focused on entrepreneurs uh, and their businesses, and we help entrepreneurs everywhere from idea to IPO, so all the way through the startup phase, the growth phase, and hopefully an eventual exit. And a lot of the work that I do is helping clients with contracts of one form or another, be they deals with investors or customer contracts, um, but uh, also do a lot of corporate work, a lot of venture capital work, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, all that good stuff that comes up in an entrepreneur's journey. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, Yeah, when we were having dinner, we had a conversation about just your overall approach to contracts, and it really kind of took me aback because I felt like very few lawyers practice exactly the way you do uh, when it you know when it comes to creating a contract. Uh, tell us a little bit more about just your approach to contracts. Yeah, so I'll start with uh, kind of a dirty little secret. And that is that the vast majority of lawyers are not very good at drafting contracts. And that includes lawyers who are otherwise exceptional lawyers, very successful lawyers, lawyers at very prestigious firms. The reason why is because lawyers are taught from the very start of their career to rely on precedent. And it's easy to understand that when you're thinking about researching legal issues in court cases. But they apply the same approach to contracts. So when they're faced with drafting a contract, 
they go and find another contract that someone else drafted that they can use as a model and carry a lot of that same language forward. And at the end of the day, what you end up with is a lot of contracts that are written very inefficiently, um, sometimes very awkwardly, and it has resulted in this perception that you need a lot of magic language in contracts, that you have to have a bunch of fancy words like whereas and heretofore and here and after and now therefore, blah, blah, blah. And the fact is that you don't. It's actually exceedingly rare in a contract that you have to use specific words to accomplish something. And so what I teach our associates and the way my team approaches contracts, and this is particularly important for customer contracts, which I want to come back to that point in a second, is that drafting contracts is a science and it's not an art. And your goal should be simplicity and accuracy and clarity because you want anyone who reads the contract, whether it's a business party or a judge, to read it and be able to quickly understand what it means. And so when you write, so-and-so shall have the right and be permitted to, instead of saying, so-and-so may do something, you're missing the point. When you add a bunch of things that say, a bunch of words that say the same thing over and over again, or repeat yourself throughout the contract, or I could go on and on with all these bad habits that, that some lawyers have in drafting contracts, you're doing the opposite of those goals. You're making the contract longer instead of shorter unnecessarily. You're making it less clear, and you're making it more dense for someone to read. So that's sort of the core of the philosophy. Now, yeah. I want to come back to customer contracts for a second because this is where it really becomes important. A contract, when you're selling something to a customer, you really should think of it as part of your marketing because it will impact your sales cycle. If you have a 23-page, clunky, poorly worded contract, it will inevitably take longer, cost more money than if you had a lean, focused, precisely drafted three-page agreement that your business party can read and say, oh, that looks right, that matches up the deal, I know what all that other stuff means, so I don't need my lawyer to look at it. We're just going to sign this and get it done. So if you think of your contract with your customers as marketing collateral, it gives you a different lens. And I've seen this time and time and time again, where we've taken contracts that were awkward and used a bunch of old legalese and had a bunch of stuff in there that really didn't add any value, and turn them into short, simple, straight to the point, plain English, easy to read. And I've seen clients go from months-long average sales cycle to considerably shorter sales cycles with considerably less, uh, the fewer times that lawyers get engaged and the volume and, and significance of the comments that come back from the lawyers on the other side are reduced. And all of that reduces your cost of customer acquisition, it reduces your sales cycle, and that actually translates into real dollars. And right. that's all without really sacrificing 
anything in those contracts that is significant from the standpoint of legal protection. Well, that's the, I guess that was my follow-up question is, do people perceive uh, longer contracts as being more protective, and do they perceive more complexity in the lawyering, if you will, back and forth on a contract? Do they do, Is the perception that there's some uh, insurance that's being... Uh, um, you know, transferred in that process. Yeah, I, certainly that's the perception. Um, it's just often misguided because, frankly, a lot of the draft, the bad drafting habits are just efficiency habits where you could literally say exactly the same thing in three pages less just by right. writing the same concepts in much simpler, more direct statements. But, yeah, I mean, when you are cutting clauses out of a contract, there is the perception that you're sacrificing something. And in truth, you really are, but it's a, it's a relative value judgment. You know, contracts are mostly just about two things. They're about making sure that the deal that the parties have made is accurately captured on the paper and then two, and this is where the lawyers come in, it's allocating risk between the parties. So when you understand it that way, almost everything in a contract is really a business issue, even though we have this tendency in some contract negotiations to say, this is a business issue and this is a legal issue. Well, really, most of the things that are legal issues are actually business issues. They're just business issues where the business people are deferring to the lawyers on what to do. So we look at our role to as translating those things into a business decision for the client. So if we're fussing about an indemnification clause, my job isn't to say you have to have this in there. My job is to say, Brandon, here's the risk that we're talking about in this clause. And then I can add some color and say, here are some common ways that this is handled in these kinds of deals. Here's a couple of ways we could compromise. And then you can say, Chris, I understand the risk that you're telling me we're dealing with, and that's not important to me. So let's do whatever we need to do to get the deal done. Or you can say, gosh, that's a really big potential problem. I'm really worried, and I want to make sure that we get that right. But either way, you're making a business decision, and that <laughs> informs the way we approach these things. So there's lots of clauses in these contracts in a typical sales contract that – in most cases, really don't add a lot of value for the space that they're taking up. And the gains you get from ditching, you know, a, an eight-sentence counterparts clause at the back of your contract that ends up helping make your contract five pages shorter are, in most cases, significantly outweighing any minor protection you were getting from those things. But part of the process of simplifying or drafting a contract is having those conversations with your client on the front end so that you don't actually delete something or cut something down that affects a business issue that really is a significant concern for your client. But that's kind of the framework for how you, you decide what stays and what goes. Right. Now, that's excellent. Great, uh, great clarity on making the risk, uh, you know, the, the legal risk understood in business terms. That's... Um, 
that seems like that would be very valuable for clients. I'm surprised most lawyers don't take the time to explain it that way. Well, it's it's just it's it's a training. It's how it's how lawyers learn. They learn by copying what people that came before them did. Right. And and there's there are some resources out there that focus on this approach to drafting contracts, but they're not as widespread as I wish they were. Right. Well, tell us a, a success story. Um, when we were having dinner, you mentioned uh, you simplified a contract for a client, and yeah. they had some pretty amazing results. Um, yeah. Love to hear about that. Yeah, so uh, this was about 15 years ago uh, in the early days of the SaaS, you know, software as a service business model. For your techie listeners, this is back when SaaS was called ASP. And uh, we were representing a, a SaaS company that was dealing, had a product they were selling to schools. And if you've ever sold to schools, particularly public schools, it is probably the least efficient sales cycle that I could ever imagine dealing with. Because there will be, for most school systems, a window of time when you can get the contract approved by legal and passed by the school board. And if you miss your window, you get punted all the way into the next cycle, which might be months or even a year later. And so in this circumstance, our client had a 17, 18-page contract that was frankly, not very well drafted, and they kept missing the window. And so they were having a really hard time closing deals with schools because you were dealing with both a school board and a lawyer and a business person on the other side who weren't very familiar with the technology. And then you layer onto that a a, a contract that's not very efficiently drafted, you can just imagine the conversations that would happen and the delays that would get introduced into the process. So I took their contract and I rewrote it. I, I, the approach I, I took, which I've, is what I now use to train my associates, is I made every word on the page defend its life. And if it couldn't, I killed it. And so I took out every clause that didn't really add any real value to the client. I wrote every sentence in as few words as I could write it in without changing the meaning or uh, making it less clear. And at the end of the day, we ended up with a contract that was one page front and back, so basically a two-page contract. And it was written in plain English so that any reasonably intelligent business person would read it and understand what it says. And the change in their sales cycle was dramatic. They went from having this huge problem of not being able to get deals closed because of the delays in the process to they were getting a bunch of deals signed and closed without the school's lawyer ever seeing it. Or when the school's lawyer did see it, he would read it or she would read it, and they would have a few questions or comments that would get routed to me. We'd get on the phone, we'd knock it out, and they'd get the deal signed. And so that, that was the... That was the best case and the, the one that really hammered home the point that I made earlier that you should think of your customer contract as a marketing tool because it will affect your sales cycle. Yeah. It's the, uh, the old saying, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. It's exactly um, right. That's brilliantly said because that applies to contracts. 
Yeah. And it does take time to be thoughtful about this stuff, but, um, you know, it, it, re- it doesn't take time to learn how to draft things simply and directly the first place, um, but that's a skill that you have to be taught. Right. One of, the, one of the obstacles that we face a lot of times when we're doing deals, as you know, we sell CPA firms, and we'll have a, we have a fairly simple template, and we give that to the purchaser, and some of them choose to use it and some of them don't. But, you know, often the other side reads that contract and says, oh, this is, um, this is inadequate. You need to use my 30-page contract template. And yeah, so I've I mean, seen that, that happen. Sure. I, I see that happen sometimes too. And, and at a certain level, that dynamic is unavoidable if you're dealing with a big enough client. Um, you know, if you're selling to a large multinational corporation, chances are that you're not going to have enough uh, leverage in the deal to convince them to work off of your paper, and you're going to have to work off of some nasty, ugly agreement that uh, is what you described. And you just kind of have to roll with that or make a business decision that that, bus- that piece of business is going to be large enough that it's worth the extra time and investment. But I have found that in most cases, um, you don't end up having to deal with that. And, and, and if it's a small customer, you can just tell them no. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong. Look, if it's going to be a large piece of business, that's one thing. But if it's going to be a small customer, then you can just say no. Right. Yeah. You know, we're 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 um, you know we we have X hundreds of customers using uh, this agreement, and it's drafted specifically for this. And if you would like to do business with us, we need you to work off of this document. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that approach. If the customer's not going to be worth the cost of um, working off of their clunky generic purchasing contract, it's right. better than it used to be, by the way, because. You know, again, in the early days of software and online businesses, we used to get these contracts that were 30 pages long, and they're used for buying toilet paper and janitorial supplies, and they would try to use the same purchasing contract for software and hosting services, and, and that was a real mess. Most companies <laughs> have at least matured past that. Right. Well, how would you give um, people business or business people shopping advice if they're looking for a lawyer – um, let's say they're not in the southeast and they need um, a contract lawyer. How how would they go about finding one that sort of shares your philosophy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it's hard. I mean, I, I think you kind of have to interview them and ask them questions to get a feel for their approach. But what you're looking for is someone who thinks from the perspective of a business person and not from the perspective of a law school exam. And, <laughs> and, and it's, you, want to, you, you want to see the business angle from your business lawyer because almost all the advice that business lawyers gives, a business lawyer gives to their clients has to be fit into the context of your business today. And what you're dealing with right now in this contract might be different from what another client is dealing with in a similar contract but in a different set of circumstances. So I need to understand your business and what's important to you in this deal. Um, and then just generally ask them about their philosophy for negotiating contracts and how they draft contracts and 
how they think about things and, and try to suss out the ones who, who have that business mind to them. I mean, the other thing you can do is you can, I mean, you can ask them to send you, you know, a sample of a contract that they drafted uh, that they think is particularly well done and just have them redact out the, uh, the, any uh, names and identifying information. And you're looking for things like, um, you know, simple direct statements, not using the passive voice, not double writing numbers. That's one of, if you really want to see cognitive dissonance from a lawyer, ask a lawyer that writes out the, the number and then puts the numerals in parentheses to explain to you why they feel the need to do that because it, you will get some comically irrational answers on that one. Um, th- those are the questions that I think about when I'm okay. uh, talking to a lawyer to understand how they're going to approach these things. But really, at the end of the day, it's what I started with. You want right. to get a sense of their business acumen as much as they're legal. Right. And I think timing is, is another aspect that, you know, we have a saying as, as intermediaries that time kills deals. And sure. if, if you get too much back and forth and too much complexity, you can, you know, you can actually have a deal die because of, of timing and, you know, the lawyer has contributed to that. So no, um, no question. I mean, responsiveness is a core attribute of any successful lawyer yeah. for exactly that reason. And you need to right. make sure that you're aligned with your client in terms of uh, what your client's expectations are in terms of turnaround time and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely true. Right. Um, so I want to I want to touch on EO just a little bit. I know you guys have been huge supporters of EO in Nashville and perhaps elsewhere. Um, how did how did you get connected with EO? Uh, and just for our listeners, so we are um, I'm one of the founding members of EO in Charleston. We're starting a chapter here, and that's how I met Chris. And um, you've been a big supporter of EO. I'd love to hear your take on it. Sure. Uh, we've been supporting the Nashville EO chapter, uh, and I actually had previously been involved with it um, for quite a while before I moved to my current firm. We also support uh, the Louisiana chapter and the Atlanta chapter, and it's really simple for us. Um, you know, my practice is focused on entrepreneurs and their business, and that's what EO is all about. And more importantly, these are not startups. These are companies that have a level of maturity to them. Uh, and it is not easy to find opportunities to market directly to companies that are past the startup stage, at least in bulk. Um, and for us, EO is the best outlet for that. But by, beyond that, I mean, you know, EO is a, a lot about relationships. And, you know, I have a lot of personal friendships that have come out of my work with EO Nashville that I value very highly and that go beyond just my role as a trusted advisor for some of those entrepreneurs. And I'm looking forward to developing more of those over the years. It's been a great investment for us. Good. Uh, Real quick, as we close up, I've got a couple of just uh, quick questions here, uh, if I may. Sure. So what's... um, What's one of the your favorite books that you've read lately? Favorite books that I've read lately? Um, like, a biz, like a business book. Yeah. Sort of. um, I read a great 
book on negotiation called Bargaining for Advantage. And it's been around for a little while, but it is one of the top books out there for learning how to negotiate in practical terms, not theory and science. Um, And I'm a little late to reading that one, but it is uh, one I would highly recommend to anybody that deals with negotiation at any level in a business context. Awesome. All right, so this one I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. So, okay. Uh, all lawyers that I've ever known have all known a good lawyer joke. What's your oh. favorite lawyer joke? <laughs> I, uh, gosh, I have a whole book of them called Lawyers and Other Reptiles. But uh, In fact, I used to challenge people to tell me one that I hadn't ever heard. Uh, and it's rare that I hear one these days that I haven't. Unfortunately, I, I don't. I don't think I can share any of my best ones on, <laughs> on, a, a, on a semi-public airwave. Yeah. Uh, but you know, one of them has the punchline because I knew I would get screwed. So you can do the math. On that <laughs> one. <laughs> one, of, one of my favorites. I'll share it. Is uh, this lawyer died at a young age? He was like in his 30s, and he uh, goes to St. Peter. And um, he said, "Why, you know, why, oh, yeah. why did you this take me out so young?" <laughs> he says, "Why did you take me out so young?" He says, "We thought you were ninety in your nineties with your billable hours." Right. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one too. Yeah. So, um, all right, Chris, I'll leave on that that kind of uh, corny joke there. Um, <laughs> Sounds good, Brandon. So, I want to thank you for joining us. And how, um, if people are interested in your services, how would they best follow you or get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, you can always visit our website at, at uh, bakerdonaldson.com. Donaldson is D-O-N-E-L-S-O-N. Or you can email me at csloan at bakerdonaldson.com. Sloan is S-L-O-A-N, no E on the end. Great. Chris, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you for listening today. To learn more about Chris Sloan and Baker Donaldson, please visit bakerdonaldson.com. That's B-A-K-E-R-D-O-N-E-L-S-O-N dot com. You can reach Chris at csloan at bakerdonaldson.com. That's C-S-L-O-A-N at bakerdonaldson.com. Follow him on Twitter at C-A Sloan and LinkedIn at Chris Sloan ESQ. To learn more about Poe Group Advisors, please visit www.pogroupadvisors.com. That's P-O-E-G-R-O-U-P. A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com. You can reach Brannon at bpo at pogroupadvisors.com. B-P-O-E at pogroupadvisors.com. Follow him on Twitter at pogroupadvisor and LinkedIn at Brannon Poe.